This e-multiple sclerosis review podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Natural history studies have shown that pediatric onset multiple sclerosis has a higher relapse rate than adult onset multiple sclerosis, specifically in the first few years. While recovery from relapse may be better than adults, the number of relapses is higher. The challenges of pediatric MS. Welcome to e-multiple sclerosis review. Multiple sclerosis diagnosed in childhood. How does that disease differ from adult MS? How can it best be managed? What disease-modifying therapies are appropriate? And is their use in children evidence-based? How should cognitive impairment in children be recognized and addressed? That's what we're here to talk about today. Our guests are from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where Dr. Kavita Tucker is an assistant professor of pediatrics and neurology, and Dr. Don Shisha is an assistant professor of neurology, biomedical informatics, and bioengineering. For our guest disclosure, as well as additional CME information, please go to our website, emultiplesclerosisreview.org, and click on the Volume 3, Issue 8 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Multiple Sclerosis Review. Dr. Tucker, Dr. Shah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Our first learning objective is to describe the disease-modifying therapies appropriate for treatment in children with MS. Take us to the clinic, if you would, please, Dr. Tucker, and start us out with a patient scenario. This is a case of a 16-year-old previously healthy female who presents to the emergency room with abdominal and lower extremity tingling for three days. A spine MRI reveals a T2 hyperintense lesion in the white matter of the thoracic cord. Further imaging also reveals asymptomatic T2 hyperintense lesions in the cervical spinal cord and periventricular white matter of the brain. Her spinal fluid evaluation reveals oligoclonal bands specific to the CSF. She receives the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis after she meets the 2017 McDonald criteria for diagnosis. After acute treatment with high-dose steroids, that improve her symptoms, she started on interferon beta-1A weekly injection as her disease-modifying therapy. This causes depression, and the weekly injections are intolerable to her. She's thus transitioned to oral fingolimod. After six months of therapy, she remained in remission. However, her absolute lymphocyte counts dropped below 200 cells per cubic millimeter. She did not have any opportunistic infections, but due to the low absolute lymphocyte count and risks associated with this, she was transitioned to rituximab infusion. She has remained relapse-free on rituximab in the last one and a half years. Okay, so this is a 16-year-old girl. She was initially treated with interferons, then transitioned to figolimod, and then to rituximab. All in all, what is the current standard of practice for disease-modifying therapy for pediatric multiple sclerosis? Doctor? This is a great point for discussion. At this time, a lot of practice parameters for pediatric MS comes from consensus data and extrapolation from adult MS literature. The randomized controlled trials that typically are done in adult multiple sclerosis patients for efficacy of drugs are difficult to do in pediatric patients. The main reason being that the prevalence of pediatric MS is much lower than adult MS. Among all MS patients, pediatric MS amounts to about 5% of them. So any pediatric study would need a multi-institutional collaboration, which logistically becomes a little difficult to do. 
The study by Chitness et al., which is called the Paradigms Trial, was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2018 as the first randomized trial in pediatric MS group where fingolimod was found to be superior to interferon beta-1A. So unlike 17 drugs that are approved for adult MS, fingolimod is the only FDA-approved drug for pediatric MS at this time. Other drugs like dimethylfumarate, teriflunamide, or alemtuzumab are being studied, and we will have more data in, in the future. So at this time, based on consensus from pediatric MS study group, just like adult MS, injectable therapies like interferons and glatiramer acetate are considered first line. Case reports and published case series support a good safety profile for these medicines. Spingolamod now has proven efficacy and is being used. Also, other oral agents and infusions continue to be used off-label based on observational reports. Dr. Shah. A major challenge in conducting clinical trials in the pediatric population in general is that children are considered a vulnerable population. So participation in clinical trials would require not only parental consent, but also assent by the children, depending on their age. Despite the challenges, having robust evidence to guide clinical management in the pediatric population is crucial. Thank you, Dr. Xia. Dr. Tucker, you mentioned that Fagolamod received FDA approval for pediatric multiple sclerosis. How has that changed your clinical practice? That's a great question. So the data by the authors, Chitness and others in New England Journal of Medicine demonstrated good efficacy of fingolimod in both relapse frequency as well as MRI activity. And their recent 2020 follow-up paper also demonstrated prevention of disability progression with fingolimod. So in my patient, I had started fingolimod. When the study came out, it was exciting to have at least one proven drug that works for pediatric MS. However, my patient developed severe lymphopenia, and that's why I had to discontinue this medicine. Fortunately, she did not have any opportunistic infections. She did not have any relapses while she was on it, though. So I have used fingolimod in two other patients of mine. In both those patients also, I've had to discontinue due to lymphopenia in one, and the other patient was not compliant with her medication, which caused progression of her MS. So overall, the adverse effects of this medicine has limited its use even in my practice. Using a high-efficacy therapy, like the rituximab that was used in your patient, what's the evidence basis for doing that? As we talked about before, robust, randomized clinical trials are extremely hard to perform in children with multiple sclerosis. So there is no randomized controlled trial that demonstrated efficacy of rituximab for pediatric MS. Although rituximab has been used in pediatrics for a long time in non-MS conditions like lupus or granulomatous polyangitis, for which actually it is FDA-approved, other rheumatologic conditions, and this has demonstrated efficacy. So rituximab is also used for other neuroinflammatory conditions like autoimmune encephalitis or paraneoplastic syndromes like opsoclonus myoclonus ataxia syndrome or neuromyelitis optica. And it has demonstrated good observational efficacy and overall tolerability. So there is some level of experience that exists among pediatric doctors for use of rituximab. Indeed, evidence for use in the pediatric MS population largely comes from case series and observational studies. The study by Crisco and others in Endos Neurology that we reviewed in this issue is an example of a well-conducted observational study from whom we can draw evidence. This study included rituximab and demonstrated high efficacy on real-world evidence. 
Rituximab needs ongoing monitoring, including lymphocyte subsets, immunoglobulin levels, infection adverse events, as well as ongoing monitoring of disease activity. As with other second-line agents, we will need more evidence for the long-term safety and efficacy of rituximab to better inform clinical practice. As awareness of the challenges of pediatric MS evolves, what does the future look like for treating pediatric patients like the one you described? I'm actually very optimistic about the treatment of pediatric MS going forward. I think the awareness and knowledge of pediatric onset MS and the impact it has on the adult life of these patients is increasing. Multi-institutional collaborative efforts have paved the way for even a possibility of trials that we saw with Fingolimod. More standardized approach to these patients, not only from early diagnostic standpoint, but also picking the right therapy to prevent disease progression at an early age is now been possible. There are ongoing trials now, as we know, about teriflunamide, alemtazumab, and such. And, and so a few years from now, the treatment of pediatric MS will be different, and this will change the trajectory of childhood onset MS. Dr. Shah, same question. There are lessons that we can also learn from adult multiple sclerosis population, including appreciating the importance of early diagnosis and then early initiation of treatment. Identifying patients at high risk for aggressive versus benign disease course, and selecting patients who would most likely benefit from early initiation of higher efficacy disease modifying therapies such as rituximab. Well, thank you for bringing us this case, doctors. Let's wrap up this part of our discussion by returning to our learning objective describe the disease modifying therapies appropriate for the treatment of children with MS. Uh, Dr. Tucker, what are the key things our listeners need to know? So overall, just to summarize at this time, Fingolimod is the only FDA-approved drug for pediatric MS. Although adverse effects of this medicine causes some limitation for its consistent use. With multi-institutional collaborations, other disease-modifying drugs are being studied and we will have more data in the near future. Medicines like interferon and other oral and infusion drugs are being used off-label for pediatric MS. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Drs. Kavita Tucker and Don Shisha in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up With a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you. And please, stay safe. Welcome back to this E-Multiple Sclerosis Review Podcast. We're here with Dr. Kavita Tucker and Dr. Donshi Sham from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and we've been discussing which disease-modifying therapies can be most appropriate for treating children with MS. Now let's go to our second learning objective, which is to explain the differences in MS disease activity between children and adults. So if you would please, Dr. Tucker, take us back to the clinic and bring us another patient scenario. 
So this second case is an eight-year-old male who comes to the emergency room with right hemiparesis. He does not have encephalopathy. His brain MRI reveals large, multiple focal T2 lesions in periventricular white matter and in the white matter of the cerebellum, some of which were gadolinium-enhancing. He has oligoclonal bands in the CSF. His detailed workup excluded all rheumatologic, hematologic, and metabolic causes. For this clinically isolated syndrome, he is treated acutely with IV steroids, and his symptoms improve considerably. After a detailed discussion, considering his age, family preferred to hold off on initiating disease-modifying therapy. We planned on close serial monitoring with MRI brain surveillance every four months to monitor his course. One year after his initial presentation, he presents again with new right hemiparesis and ataxia. His brain MRI reveals two new lesions. This time, he received IV steroids and plasma exchange with improvement in both clinical and radiological activity. He receives a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and is started on rituximab for disease modification. He has remained relapse-free in the last three years. He underwent neuropsychological testing and has low average scores in domains like word finding, attention, and basic visual motor perception. This eight-year-old had a disease relapse within one year of his original symptoms. How does that compare with adult MS? So over the last 15 years, knowledge of pediatric MS has considerably expanded. Natural history studies have shown that pediatric onset multiple sclerosis has a higher relapse rate than adult onset multiple sclerosis, specifically in the first few years. The MRI disease activity is also higher in the pediatric population with multiple sclerosis. While recovery from relapse may be better than adults, the number of relapses is higher. Interestingly, time to permanent disability is longer for pediatric patients. It takes roughly about 30 years compared to adults where it takes approximately 20 years from the initial presentation. However, even with the longer time to disability, the pediatric onset population tends to be almost 10 years younger than their adult counterparts when they reach significant disability, which means that those who started their MS at a younger age are likely to reach significant disability in their 40s, compared to those who start MS as an adult who will reach significant disability when they are in their 50s. The 2020 publication in the European Journal of Neurology that we reviewed affirmed this finding that younger age of MS onset predicts the higher relapse rate and progression later in life. And this finding underscores the need for timely and effective control of disease progression in the pediatric MS population. So with my patient, both clinical and radiological relapse in one year follows the pattern of what we know from literature. In general, adults with MS are monitored with brain MRI every 9 to 12 months. Is monitoring different for pediatric multiple sclerosis? So, you know, as we discussed, the relapse rate in pediatric patients with multiple sclerosis is higher than adults with MS. This relapse rate is highest in the first two years after onset and remains high up until the first five years. So a closer monitoring of these patients is of paramount importance, at least in the first five years. This not only helps with diagnostic accuracy, but also serves as a tool for monitoring the therapy. The consensus guidelines from International Pediatric MS Study Group suggest getting MRI every six months for monitoring in pediatric MS patients. Some children end up needing sedation to obtain MRIs, and this, again, becomes a limiting factor if they are young. 
At our center, we have an advantage of doing only limited sequences that allow shorter time for scans and avoids the need for sedation in most cases where the scans are being done for surveillance. In my patient, due to his early presentation, that was a little aggressive. We had planned to monitor him more closely. Impaired cognitive function in children with MS. How serious a concern is that? What does the evidence say? This is a great question. So pediatric brain is a developing brain. Chronic inflammation during this time, not only from MS, but from any condition, is likely to affect the maturation of the brain. It is known from previous cross-sectional studies that up to one-third of children with multiple sclerosis will have measurable cognitive dysfunction. This can be in multiple domains like attention span, memory, processing speed. This was also seen in my patient. For him, at age nine, we already had a measurable executive dysfunction. Even if it is subtle, in childhood, cognitive impairment will affect their learning and performance in school. As they grow into adolescence and young adults, they will have challenges in multiple areas like understanding their condition, medication management, transitioning to an adult MS care center. They may even have difficulty being independent about managing their condition as an adult. Ultimately, this will have an impact on their overall ability, employment, quality of life as an adult. In the article that we reviewed on this issue by Mackey and others that was published in JAMA, authors found an impaired processing speed in many adults who've had their onset of MS at a younger age of less than 18. So cognitive impairment can start early and detecting this is of value. Monitoring cognitive function in children, how should that be done? And what can be done if they're already experiencing cognitive struggles? So cognitive function can be monitored by neuropsychological testing. This is a collection of standardized tools that can be used to test children on multiple domains like IQ, memory, processing speed, visual spatial abilities, attention span, emotional status, and similar. These standardized scores can be then monitored every one to two years to see if they change. These are done by trained neuropsychologists. If an impairment is identified on any domain, implementation of an education plan for school will help maximize the student's potential. For my patient with poor attention span and word-finding difficulty, we were able to incorporate special education service plan for him in school. This allowed for extra time to complete quizzes, sequence phenomic cues to allow for him to help with word-finding and quiet learning space to maintain attention. Such modifications, or in some cases, higher level of modification with an individualized learning plan, also known as IEP, helps with scholastic performance of these children. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. Let's return now to our learning objective, which is to explain the differences in MS disease activity between children and adults. Dr. Shah, what are the key things our listeners should take away from our conversation? First, MS patients with childhood onset have higher disease activity than those with adult onset in terms of both clinical and radiological disease activity. Second, Significant disability accrual in MS typically takes about a couple decades to develop, but those with pediatric onset develop significant disability earlier than those with adult onset. Finally, clinicians should detect cognitive dysfunction early using neuropsychological testing and help patients modify school education program to maximize performance in school. From the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Dr. Kavita Tucker and Dr. Dan Shisha, 
Thank you for sharing your insight and expertise with us in this e-multiple sclerosis review podcast. Thank you. It was our pleasure to be with you. Glad to be here. Thank you. For e-multiple sclerosis review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ems.dkb.com. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is supported by educational grants from Biogen Incorporated, the Genzyme Organization, Celgene Corporation, and Genentech. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Multiple Sclerosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.